Welcome everyone. Welcome to tonight's program. And I like to begin <clears throat> each program by remembering my guru, Baba Muktananda, who began every one of his programs by saying in Hindi, Sabko Varasanmane Kesat Premse Hardik Swagat. With great respect and love, I welcome you all with all my heart. And he would always say that that's the essence of spirituality, to welcome another person with love, to welcome yourself with love. This is spirituality. It's not about difficult concepts. It's not about complex rituals. It's about simple movement of the human heart. So in that spirit, I want to welcome you all uh, to tonight's program. <clears throat> well... I have to report that uh, uh, we've had a rough couple of days here at the ashram. Um, we're in lockdown again uh, by law because uh, one of the ashramites tested positive for COVID. Um, <clears throat> so uh, we're doing well with that. That person's isolated and is doing better. Um, and today we had a, a test of all the ashramites, and everyone was negative. So, so far, so good, and we're doing everything uh, we can to make sure it doesn't spread, and, and people are being very conscious. Uh, but because of that, we uh, are locked down, and people can't come from outside. A lot of the outside, the household devotees are out in radio land. So let me welcome everybody in Radio Land um, uh, and hope in a few days uh, that uh, we'll be through this. <coughs> I should also mention that it's Navaratri, um, one of the several Navaratris in the year. Navaratri is, a, um, is the worship of the goddess, the divine uh, feminine. And because of that, I've chosen my great being, uh, my great being uh, tonight is a great woman saint, one of the great women saints of the uh, 20th century. When I got to Ganeshpuri, she was still alive, though very, very old. I never had her darshan, um, but she's truly extraordinary. And I'm speaking of Mira Alfasa. She's, um, you don't, this is probably a picture of you've never seen before. She's also known more uh, commonly as uh, the mother of Oroville, the mother, Aurobindo's uh, spiritual partner, the mother of Aurobindo, not his mother, but his <laughs> spiritual partner. This is her as a young woman. Um, what else do we have? 
Now, she lived to a ripe age of 90, uh, what was it, 96, I think, 95. And so this is her at the end of her life. She, fought, she outlived Aurobindo by almost 25 years. And then the two of them together, do we have that too? Yes, um, Aurobindo was uh, reclusive for many years, and uh, the Mira uh, <clears throat> ran the ashram. And then several times a year, on rare occasions, they would give darshan. The devotees only saw Aurobindo on very, uh, once a year or maybe twice on special days. And so here they're giving darshan that people filed by and saw them. So this is uh, before 1950, the end of Aurobindo's life. <clears throat> so Mira, Thank you. let me tell you about her life a little bit. Uh, she was born in 1878, and she died in 1973. At the end of 1973, uh, just before uh, we were going to the West with Baba, the word came that she had died at the age of 95. <clears throat> she was born in Paris. Uh, her parents were Sephardic Jews. Her father, her father was Turkish, her mother Egyptian. That means a, a sort of Asiatic, uh, Asiatic Jews. Uh, she studied art, uh, a Parisi, uh, Parisian. Um, and then somewhere in there, she became interested in spirituality. Uh, and around 1906, she would have been uh, 27, 28 years old, 1906, 1907, uh, she traveled to Algeria to study with uh, an occultist named Max Theon and his wife Alma. So I guess uh, the opportunities for uh, deep spirituality weren't very great uh, in Europe unless you went to India, which she did a few years later, but she studied with this occultist. Uh, and then later she married uh, to a man named Paul Richard or Paul Richard. I don't know whether he was English or French. Um, and uh, they went to India and met Aurobindo in 1914 at Pondicherry. And Mira had many experiences on the meeting. In other words, she got Chakipat and went through many things. Um, <clears throat> so they went on. Richard went to Japan, and uh, in 1920, years later, she returned to Pondicherry uh, to live in the ashram. And she rose to prominence in the community. Aurobindo began to call her the mother. And in 1924, she began to organize the day-to-day -day, uh, routine of the ashram and spoke to the, the uh, ashramites and so on. Uh, because from 1926 on, uh, Orbindo started to focus on his inner work and he withdrew from the public. So it was uh, the mother who did everything. Uh, and at Orbindo's death in 1950, she took over and continued her work until her death in November of 73, as I said. So this is the mother. <clears throat> and uh, 
there's a certain quality in her teaching. You can see that she's a Westerner, as well as a profound yogini. Uh, and these are question answers uh, with the mother. This is dated 17 February 1954. So it's about four years after Aurobindo's uh, death. And so the mother would have informal question answers with ashramites. So these are some examples. Sweet mother, you've, you've said, give up all personal seeking for comfort, satisfaction, enjoyment, or happiness. Be only a burning fire for progress. <clears throat> Take whatever comes to you as an aid to your progress and immediately make whatever progress is required. Just quoting the, the mother. It's very uncompromising, isn't it? Don't look for your comfort. How much do, time do we spend worrying about our comfort? And don't worry about our satisfaction and enjoyment and so on. But take whatever comes and make use of it in your spiritual process. So uh, Nira says, yes, that's quite simple. It's very clear. She liked, <laughs> she liked the quote. And the questioner says, yes. But if I want to progress, to progress in sports, for instance, then that would be personal progress, wouldn't it? And Nira very charmingly says, huh? What? In sports? Like, what are you talking about? <clears throat> no, the value of the will depends on your aim. It is in order to be successful, if it's in order to be successful and earn a reputation for yourself and be better than others, all sorts of ideas like that, then that becomes something very egoistic, very personal, and you won't be able to make progress. Yes, you'll make progress. In other words, you'll make progress in sport, but still you won't, that won't lead you anywhere. She's saying she's only recognizing spiritual progress. <clears throat> but if you do it with the idea of being open, even in, even in the physical, to the divine influence, to be a good instrument and manifest him, then that is very good. Not clear? And uh, the question says, yes, it is. So she's saying that, that if you have a certain attitude, uh, if you, even practicing sport, if you do that with the right attitude in connection with the divine, then you can make spiritual progress there. She goes on. Physical things are not necessarily more egoistic than mental or emotional ones. Far from it. They're often much less so. Egoism does not lie in that. Egoism lies in the inner attitude. It does not depend on the field in which you're concentrated. It depends on the attitude that you have. It does not depend on what you do. It depends on the way you do it. So attitude is everything. So if you do, from the outside, it may, they may, two, things may, two people may look like they're doing the same thing, but the question is what they're doing on the inside. <clears throat> question. Once one is in contact with the self, why does the self hide itself again? That's a very good question, isn't it? 
Many people have asked that. And uh, Mira says, it's not the self that hides itself. It's the person who returns to their ordinary consciousness. It's difficult for it to remain at its highest. One slides down, falls back. Only the second time the discovery is easier. And each time the road is easier until one no longer falls back. It's a very optimistic point of view. And uh, Patanjali would say that when you, know, when you connect with the self, that creates a samskara. It creates a tendency, which is a healthy tendency, a healthy samskara. And so every time you do that, it makes it more likely that you'll be able to do that again. It makes it easier. Uh, everything depends on habit. We're creatures of habit. And a lot of our habits, our ingrained habits are negative. They take us in the wrong direction. Mental habits, emotional habits, they bring us down. Uh, so to cultivate a good habit of connecting with the self, uh, that eventually uplifts us. So it becomes easier and easier. You're creating good samskaras instead of bad ones. Another question. Sweet mother, <clears throat> you once said that the mystic notion of God may be replaced by the more philosophical notion of truth, and still the discovery will essentially remain the same. But the road leading to it may be taken by even the most intransigent positivist. Could you explain? It reminds me of something in um, uh, uh, Brahmani Ma's talk about how she was afraid of being too religious, so she wanted something more positivistic. Positivistic means um, non-religious uh, or non-metaphysical, rational, you could say. Um, <clears throat> so the mother apparently once said that um, God can be expressed in a very simple and rationalistic way that even positivists, rationalists, can accept it. So here's what the mother says. She says, it all depends on what meaning you put onto the word God. It is a word to express something you do not know but are trying to attain. When you think about it, we use the word God. What do we mean by God? It's a comfortable word. We've all said it a million times, and we have different associations. But what are we saying when we say the word God? Uh, she goes on, if you've received a religious education, you're accustomed to, to call this God. If you've received a more positivist or a more philosophical education, you're accustomed to call this by all sorts of names, and you may at the same time have the idea that it is the supreme truth. So she's saying that God is that which is beyond everything, the highest thing you can think of. We call it God. Some people call it God. Some people call it other things. <clears throat> we call God, she says, what is beyond anything we know and can grasp and be. All that, all that is too far for us to be able to understand, we call God. Only some religions give a precise form to the Godhead. And sometimes they have several forms. And there are several gods. Sometimes they have one form and have only one god. But all of this is human fabrication. 
It's all just imagination, all the different forms. <clears throat> there is something. There is a reality which is beyond your expressions, but which you can succeed in contacting by practicing a discipline. We can identify ourselves with it. Once, this, once one is identified with it, one knows what it is, but one cannot express it, for words cannot say it. It's direct experience. So if you use some kind of vocabulary, you have a particular mental conviction, you will use that vocabulary cor corresponding to that conviction. So if, if you're raised in the church, you'll have the Christian vocabulary. And if you're raised as a Buddhist, you'll have that vocabulary. If you're raised as a positivist, you'll have a positivistic vocabulary. If you belong to another group, which is another way of speaking, you will call it or even think about it in that way. I'm telling you this to give you the true impression that there is something there which cannot be grasped, grasped by thought, but which exists. There's a higher reality that can only be known directly. But the name you give it matters little. That's of no importance. That transcendent something exists. See, her conviction, her knowledge, her direct experience is that it exists. When do you know that that higher reality exists? When you receive Shaktipat. Before that, it's only a belief that you have. When you receive Shaktipat, you have the direct experience of this dimension of life. So she says, and so the only thing is, the only thing is to enter into contact with it, not to give it a name or describe it. In fact, there's hardly any use giving it a name or describing it. So lately I've been involved in uh, uh, creating a course that's going to be given in Indian universities, uh, which were, the course is called Second Education. Uh, and I always uh, talk about first education as our normal positivistic education, the kind of education we have in the university, and second education, which is the direct experience of the divine, the direct experience of the self. So she's talking about second education in a beautiful way. It's coming into contact with this higher power, coming into direct experiential contact. <clears throat> Question, still in the same line. Doesn't faith in God with no direct experience have some worth? What will she say to that? <clears throat> she says, it may have some worth. However, one must try to enter into contact, concentrate upon it, live it, live that reality, and whatever the name you give it is not at all important once you have the experience. The experience alone matters. So we would say that she's a yogini. She believes in the direct experience, second education, the direct experience of the divine. Live it, make contact with that power. And when people appreciate this experience, associate this experience with a particular expression and are so attached to that narrow expression that they, validate, they invalidate 
all other approaches, that is an inferiority. It says if you, if you think of it in one way, this is typical of religions. Most religions of a certain level uh, put all the other religions down because they're used to conceiving of this higher power. They're all talking about the same higher power, but they all conceive it in a particular structured way, and then when someone else has a different conception, they get into a, a dispute with them. She says, one must be able to live that reality through all possible paths to see that the same truth is worshipped in Islam and in Christianity and Buddhism and Hinduism, uh, Judaism and all the different religions. <clears throat> through all possible paths and occasions, all formations, one must live it, for that indeed is true, for that is supremely good, that is all-powerful, that knows everything, that, yes, one can live that, but one cannot speak about it. <clears throat> and if one does speak, all that one says about it has no great importance. It is only one way of speaking, that is all. However, it is true that one who has that experience and also has the city of expression can transmit that experience through words. So that's why we have satsang, because these great beings can actually transmit the shakti, that experience, through their teachings and through their words. Not, mind you, through the cognitive content of the words, but through the force and power of the words, what we call the shakti. Such transmission is possible. <clears throat> How are we going? David, are you enjoying her? Okay. Uh, a lot of this is about uh, religion and so on, but I'll go for it. Question. It seems that modern thinkers don't like to use the word God, and when they recognize that there's a higher power, they call it other names. Does Mother find any validity in these modern speculations? <laughs> and she says, there's an entire line of philosophers and people have replaced the notion of God by the notion of an impersonal absolute or by a notion of truth or a notion of justice or even by a notion of progress, of something eternally progressive but that's a, an evolutionary force. But for one who has within him the capacity of identifying himself with that, what has been said about it isn't much importance. So she emphasized identification with the divine, really connecting, really living it. Sometimes one may read a whole book of philosophy and not progress a step further. Sometimes one may be quite a fervent devotee of a religion and not make progress spiritually. There are people who have spent entire lifetimes seated in contemplation and attained nothing. That's a sad thought, isn't it? <clears throat> there are people, we have well-known examples, who used to do the most modest of manual works, like a cobbler 
mending old shoes, and who have had an experience. Uh, this is particularly true in the uh, devotion, the bhakti tradition, uh, particularly among the Maharashtran saints. There were uh, cobblers and potters and so on, but they had so much spirituality that they, they lived it. <clears throat> he says, it is altogether beyond what one thinks and says of it. It is a gift, that's all, grace. And all that is needed uh, is to be that, to succeed in identifying oneself with it and live it. At times you read a sentence in a book and it leads you there. Question. Is Mother saying that there's absolutely nothing worthwhile in becoming interested in religion and philosophy and making an intellectual study of it? Uh, hoping one day to translate that into direct knowledge of God? Amira <clears throat> says, sometimes you read entire books of philosophy or religion and they get you nowhere. However, there are people whom the reading of philosophy books helps to go ahead spiritually. So again, it's uh, the way you do it, isn't it? It's not about reading or not reading. There's only one thing that's important, that is a sincere and persistent will to have an earnest desire to know the self, to know God. If you have that, then whatever you do will lead you there. If you don't have that, then you'll complain about this method or that method. <clears throat> One must persevere. These things don't happen in a twinkling. When someone feels that he's not advancing, he must not get discouraged, but must try to find out what, what it is in his nature that is opposing and then make necessary progress. So what she's saying there is do Shiva process. Says when you find a block, when you find difficulty, you, you inquire into it. You discover what it is and you can, through direct inquiry, shift that block and then connect with the Shakti again. This is nothing but Shiva process. And suddenly one goes forward. And when you reach the end, you have an experience. Okay. One more, different one, different direction. Question. It's hard for me to understand how the subjective consciousness projects the outer world. The I am becomes the that. <clears throat> and Shaivism says that Shiva, which is pure awareness, self-contained, uh, becomes the whole universe, expands out, becomes the objective universe. From this pure subjectivity, the object happens. So she's saying, or, or whoever is asking this question, is asking, how does that happen? And once that outer world is projected, what is its relationship to the original consciousness? That's an interesting question. What would Shaivism say? Shaivism says it's always the, the external, the, 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 uh, sub, the uh, objective field is always related, related to and dependent on the subject. The I am generates the whole thing. So here's what uh, 
the mother says, let's start with the basics. You know the difference between what is subjective and what is objective? You know it. Do you know what's the difference between what's subjective and what's objective? A lot of people don't know that. <clears throat> Very simple. Well, imagine precisely this reality that we're speaking about is at the origin of all things. The subjective reality is at the origin of all things. Imagine it passing from the subjective to the objective state. Actually contemplate it. What would it be like to move from being subject into the object? That is, what was within becomes as though projected outside. It is the same thing. It is the state, it is the state that changes. So just like when you have an idea and then you manifest that idea, so the universe manifests. And so within universal consciousness, there are all the possibilities of objective existence. <clears throat> Within, they are unexpressed and unmanifested. Outside, they are projected as a picture is projected on the cinema screen. We see it before us. And every element that was a possibility within us becomes the reality of a being, of an individuality, if you like, of something existing objectively. So each of us is a possibility, we have a possibility to project something out. We're, we're projected from Shiva, we're a personality from Shiva that can manifest some external thing. In this way, our entire experience of life is held in place by your inner experience. This is your being and is always at the core of whatever you experience. It ties your experience as a child to your experience now. You always have this beingness. You're the same beingness that you had when you were very young. You may not have as, then you may not have had the sophistication or the knowledge that you have now or the personality, but your being was the same. And now you still have, and the beingness is still the center of who you are. And all experience points back to this central beingness. So the self is at the center of your whole existence. Your beingness, the self. Wonderful, huh? The knower of the self. So let's meditate for a bit. There's a lot in that. I love the uh, the beingness. <clears throat> Since uh, Brahmani brought up the Hamsa mantra, I have no choice but for us to do a little Hamsa. Hamsa, the Hamsa mantra, Baba very. Uh, you can take that. Baba was very uh, much in love with the Hamsa mantra, uh, as it was taught in the great text, the Vijnana Bharava. Uh, <clears throat> Vijnana Bharava's first me uh, technique, the 112 techniques in that text, is precisely the Hamsa mantra. And it really is nothing but watching the breath, watching the breath come in and go out. In with the sound hum, which means I am. So in the in-breath, you're emphasizing your 
beingness. And then sa, the breath goes out. Now you're, you're, you're Shiva manifesting the universe. You're manifesting the objective field. So the subject in, the object out. And all depends on the subject. Everything is sprung from the subject, from your, yourself. So let's do that for 10 minutes. All you have to do to do this practice is just watch your breath. Lightly bring your attention to the breath and watch it go in and go out. Let the breathing be natural. Don't distort the breathing if you can. Let the breath come in and hear the sound hum, I am. Let the breath go out, sa. Hear the sound, sa. I am that, the objective field. And just watch the breath come in and go out. A special, a special chemistry and alchemy happens when you join your attention to the breath. So just lightly do that. Other thoughts come in, just go back to the breath. Sometimes you'll be pulled away into some fantasy or memory or something. Um, whenever you remember, just go back to the breath. So let's do that. We'll meditate on the in-breath and the out-breath on the Hamsa mantra for 10 minutes. And once again, with great respect and love, I welcome you all with all my heart. Satyanath Maharaj Kijay.